Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, we've reached an important milestone in the 18-month-long Ebola epidemic. That's after a devastating year-and-a-half-long struggle to contain and combat this deadly disease. Well, more than 28,000 residents in that region were afflicted with Ebola, and it really caught the local, national, and global health officials off guard, with many of the worst hit areas uh, not having healthcare infrastructure in place, and it took months before the global health community could really ramp up to get meaningful help to the region. Ebola has claimed the lives of more than 11,000 people during the past 18 months, but it could have been a lot worse. Health officials in more populated countries like Nigeria were effective at tracking and blocking any potential carriers, the death toll could have been much, much higher had that not been the case. Well, while it has, as you know, been a disaster for the three West African countries, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia, and global health officials have just asked the G7 summit leadership to provide funds for an Ebola-ready response team in the event of future outbreaks. The World Health Organization took some flack for being ill-prepared for the epidemic and especially slow to respond to the crisis. They're hoping to put in place an organized and trained rapid response team if or when other epidemics emerge. Well, global health experts were able to develop some pretty reliable best practices in a short period of time, learning how to contain those infected, how to protect healthcare workers, and educating the communities about how to stay safe. All these were key to eventually containing the epidemic. So, so many lessons learned here, Mark. Learning uh, from measurements is something our guest today is quite passionate about, Margaret. Dr. Christine Castle is president and CEO of the National Quality Forum, a nonprofit coalition of healthcare stakeholders seeking to improve healthcare through better measurements. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by, and she is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Christine Castle in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Healthcare is a $3 trillion a year industry in this country, and increasingly, prescription drugs are playing a big role in that cost. And the result of a recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll should come as no surprise. 72% of Americans feel the federal government should step in and do something to control the sometimes outrageous costs for prescription drugs, as increasingly Americans are paying more out-of-pocket with high-deductible insurance plans. A vast majority also believe it should be easier to purchase the cheaper drug equivalents in Canada. Big Pharma seems to be taking a beating. Only 4 in 10 Americans polled had a favorable view of the pharmaceutical companies. Parity in the bedroom. The FDA has approved a new drug developed to target low libido in women. The so-called women's Viagra comes with some warnings, though. Some of the side effects include a severe drop in blood pressure, especially when accompanied with alcohol. The pill is to be taken daily and is said to moderately increase desire in women. As if you needed another incentive to breastfeed, according to a 30-year study, it appears breastfeeding offers another benefit, improved cardiovascular health over a lifetime. The study looked at over 800 women who breastfed for a month or less as opposed to those who breastfed for 10 months or more. 
Longer participants had almost 20% less plaque buildup in their carotid artery, a sign of cardiovascular disease or lack thereof. The study looked at other factors, including race, blood pressure, BMI, and cholesterol levels. The lengthy breastfeeding seems to have a prophylactic effect on heart disease. The study is in the August issue of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And according to another longitudinal study conducted by the University College of London and others, the work-obsessed culture does not bode well for workers' health. A study of more than 600,000 participants showed those who worked more than 55 hours per week had a 30% higher risk of stroke and a 13% higher risk of coronary artery disease. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Christine Castle, President and CEO of the National Quality Forum, a nonprofit membership organization that works to help improve health and healthcare quality through measurement. An internist and specialist in geriatric medicine, Dr. Castle served as President and CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and its foundation. She serves on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology and has lent her expertise to the Institute of Medicine and the National Institute of Health. Dr. Castle is a former president of the American College of Physicians and has published extensively. Her most recent book is Medicare Matters. She's consistently named on Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential List. Dr. Castle, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And the Quality Forum, now uh, 16 years old, was set out to create a best-in-class standards and metrics that could be used to improve the nation's quality of healthcare and help consumers and providers make more informed healthcare decisions. Could you share with our listeners and paint a picture about how far we've actually come in the decade and a half since the National Quality Forum was established? Well, if you think back to 1999, um, it was a time where we had very little open information for consumers or, frankly, even for providers about the quality of care. We didn't have consistent measures that were used throughout healthcare, and the information wasn't available. Um, If you think about it, even Google had just barely been created around that time. Hard hard to believe. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to imagine, but that's how long ago it was. So we've come a long way since then, and NQF has been right in the center of helping to set standards for what measures are actually accurate and rigorous and meaningful um, when we're talking about trying to evaluate health care. But I would say we have a long way to go. I think of it as kind of a airplane. We've been taxing down the runway, and we've just gotten lift off, but we aren't nearly at cruising altitude yet. But NQF's role has been all along the one place that includes all the perspectives from stakeholders, public and private, as well as a very strong voice of consumers and purchasers. Um, So I think there's a lot more acceptance of performance measurement. If you look at just the last four years, we've seen a dramatic reduction, almost 20% reduction in hospital-acquired conditions uh, like infections, 50,000 lives saved, and $12 billion. So that would not have happened if we hadn't been able to measure those things and then report back to people and allow them to find ways to reduce those kinds of events. 
same kinds of level of improvements, actually even more dramatic in maternity care, in reducing unnecessary hospitalizations and readmissions. So I think the place to really look for results in this area is within hospitals and community-based institutions where people now are able to look at the quality of care and the patient Mm -hmm. experience and then respond by using best practices and collaborating um, regionally or even nationally to figure out how to reduce problems and improve um, quality. You know, Dr. Kessel, let's talk a little bit about the membership today that's at the core of the National Quality Forum. You've said that to create a truly gold standard for quality measures, you've got to have all stakeholders at the table, and the forum has hundreds of members that represent the full spectrum of stakeholders, providers and payers, uh, patients or consumers and businesses, all of whom obviously play a vital role in the health system, not always, maybe with all interests perfectly aligned, (laughs) maybe. Could you talk a little bit about how all these different participants and how do you arrive at quality measures in a way that satisfies all the stakeholders that are at the table? Well, it's right at the core of our mission, and it's actually what makes NQF so unique. There really isn't another organization like this. The NQF is really the only place that comes together around an open, transparent process, particularly having the strong consumer voices at the Mm -hmm. table. So measure developers bring to NQF measures for endorsement, and then CMS brings to us a list every year of the measures as they're considering using in all of their numerous now programs. And our committees advise them on priorities and on which measures are best used for which programs. So we have roughly 12 to 14 different ongoing standing committees. We have 850-plus volunteers on all these expert and multi-stakeholder committees. So looking at the different measures and the different issues and helping us come to consensus. You know, we're seeing more and more controversial measures now because payment is so strongly attached to so many of them, and that's not surprising. You can have a really, really good measure scientifically, but if it's not feasible to get the data or if it doesn't really address an important issue, then it's not practical to really put that into implementation. So I think one of the things we're able to do through our consensus process is get to the most practical results. You know, I I liked your analogy about uh, taxiing down the runway. I was sort of of thinking that certainly during that time we didn't have enough data to really take off. And then some would say that we're flooded with too much data and not uh, actionable data right now. But uh, you, you've talked about these tensions that weigh heavily on the industry. We had uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Stack, who is the president of the AMA on uh, the other day, describing that his membership is drowning in reporting requirements. Could you talk to our listeners about these industry challenges and the need for better science behind the measurements? First, as a physician, let me just say I'm very sympathetic with Dr. Stack's point, And it is really true that the demand for better information is kind of hitting the doctors with all these different requirements, and there really is a need to align the measures, to get all of the different people who are using similar measures but not exactly the same together and try to reduce the redundancy and reduce the burden of what it costs to collect the data and report it. 
one day we will have all of this data organically coming out of the electronic records. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, when I first came to NQF, literally 50% of the people I talked to said that just what you're hearing, that we're drowning in measures, Mm -hmm. there's too much reporting going on, and it's all noise and nobody can make any sense of it. The other 50% are saying we don't have enough measures. (laughs) Um, From the doctor's perspective, if you're a neurosurgeon, we actually don't have good measures that Mm. measure what you do. And if you're a patient and you have an unusual condition, or actually not that unusual, like let's say multiple sclerosis, you want to know about that, and we don't have good measures for that. So I call this the Goldilocks problem. We have too many measures and not enough measures, and we don't have the right measures. So we need we need just the right measures, and that's where measurement science comes in. Well, Dr. Castle, for our listeners, maybe you could speak a little bit to what kind of system changes have come about because of having access to better data, because of these quality measures. Give us maybe some examples of the system changes within that led to the better outcomes, and and also if you have examples of some health systems across the country that you really think are getting this data sharing right. Within the membership of NQF, I can point to Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Geisinger, Denver Health, Kaiser, Intermountain, Mass General and Partners, and many, many more. And each of them They report these national metrics to the federal government and to state payers, Medicaid, and the private payers as well. And then they identify internally scorecards across the different units of the hospital and share that internally. So it's a kind of a system of using your own data and having everybody within an organization working from the same platform, if you want to think about it that way. And then to say, oh, my goodness, look at how much better they're doing over in Six North. And let's go find out what they're doing differently. And a lot of people are just literally learning from one another the science of quality improvement. Mm -hmm. And that includes putting in place reminders, checklists Mm -hmm. for safety and the every single time you go into the operating room because that's how you prevent errors from happening. So recently, a number of hospitals have done amazing things in reducing readmission by following up with their patients and some even giving their patients an iPad to take home with them that reminds them to take their medication, has them able to communicate seamlessly with a nurse at the hospital, lots of sort of creative ideas like that. We're speaking today with Dr. Christine Castle, President and CEO of the National Quality Forum, a national collaboration of stakeholders aimed at improving health and healthcare quality through measurement. Dr. Castle also served as President and CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine. Dr. Castle, let's talk about the incentive movement, and we're seeing this shift from volume to value. And HHS and Secretary Burwell recently announced some very ambitious goals for the coming year, including ensuring that 90% of Medicare outcomes are tied to quality. Is the National Quality Forum engaged in conversations with them about, about this reach? We are very definitely, Mark, engaged in conversations with them and with the private payers as well because Mm -hmm. they're moving down this road too. They all are part of a national effort called the Learning and Action Network that's trying to align the efforts of the private sector and the public sector, much more accelerated push to paying for value. 
NQF has been very clear in our um, uh, measurement science work to say you're not going to be able to just use cost alone and still have consumers know that they're getting value because value is cost plus quality. Mm -hmm. It's really about getting rid of the waste Mm -hmm. and extra cost, unnecessary cost in healthcare, and paying for what really does benefit the patient. But in terms of what, how to bring providers along, because some physicians and some healthcare systems and hospitals are way far along this way. They've been doing this for a long time, and they know how to think about patient-centered care in a way that doesn't ask every time, is this going to get paid for or not? Mm -hmm. But for many providers, it's a whole new way of thinking about how you collect information, how you organize your teams, and how you interact with your patients through email or telephone or other kinds of ways providing really good quality data that both providers and their own patients can understand and that they really believe in is dramatically motivational. If they are using data that they believe, they will say, oh, I never realized that I wasn't checking lipids in my diabetics because we didn't have the data systems to make that visible to folks before. So I think that's what's going to really be the key here. Well, Dr. Kessel, let's maybe take a moment to look at some areas of interest to you personally. Prior to heading the National Quality Forum, you were the CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the ABIM Foundation. And three years ago, uh, ABIM launched the Choosing Wisely campaign that called for providers as well as patients to curtail the overuse of dozens of costly, often unnecessary, and sometimes even dangerous common procedures and medications. Share with us what kind of impact has the Choosing Wisely campaign had been, how do you see that movement evolving in this era of both consumer-driven and also value-driven healthcare? I am so proud of having been involved in that at the very beginning. And, you know, it was, in a way, something that came from the profession itself, who were beginning to look at all of the concern about the rising cost of care and say, you know, we own a piece of this, and we can be helpful by identifying areas in our own practice that are overused, often because patients have those expectations, too. I think the, the insight that we had at ABIM Foundation was we need to get the doctors and the patients together to talk about this message, because so often when you begin talking about cost of care and reducing overuse, people are worried about rationing and And so let's just have the the medical experts and patient groups. We were so fortunate to have a robust partnership with Consumer Reports, and I think that was the magic of choosing wisely. And now, as you've seen, it's kind of entered the vernacular. This has coincided in an interesting way with the rise of more high-deductible insurance Mm -hmm. programs. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it came just at a time when consumers needed this, because often that first dollar payment is actually something that comes out of their pocket. You know, let me uh, let me give a quick shout out to one of our own staff physicians, Dr. Stephen Smith, who's one of the founders of the Choosing oh, Wisely yes. movement, and uh, there have been lots who've who've added to that cause, and a lot of great physicians out there. And well, Steve you, was Steve was there right at the very beginning, and actually brought the idea initially to us, along well, with the National Physicians Alliance. And then that allowed us to figure out how to take it to all the other specialties. Yes, definitely. And speaking of great physicians, your 
certainly a world-renowned uh, expert in geriatric medicine and Medicare, as we know, celebrated its 50th anniversary. And uh, and I think we hear pretty regularly that roughly 10,000 Americans per day are uh, reaching the age of uh, of Medicare. And uh, your book, uh, Medicare Matters, What Geriatric Medicine Can Teach American Healthcare, you note that uh, Medicare is perhaps the most important healthcare program of our time. And I wonder if you can share with our, our listeners a little bit about what we learned about the evolution of Medicare as well as the evolving discipline of geriatric medicine. I first would point out that those 10,000 people a day who are turning 65 are by and large not what we think of as a geriatric patient. And between the ages of 65 to 75, probably even up to 80, people are living longer and staying healthier as they age. But part of the price of getting old is that you do do develop a number of age-related conditions. The specialty of geriatrics is unique because it understands the science behind aging, the distinction between treating a disease and treating a patient who has multiple, multiple chronic conditions. And all of it is patient-focused, which is, of course, something we want all healthcare to be now. And that's why geriatric medicine can teach American healthcare, because looking at what are a patient's values, what does a patient hope to get out of the treatment? But let's have a partnership between the patient and their family and organize the care around that set of values, which, frankly, might sometimes be putting different priorities in place than a standard medical guideline would have. So um, that's where I think this, the specialty of geriatrics could add a lot. It's also totally committed to coordination of care, so having multiple specialists very interactive with one another. So none of them are interacting in a bad way, and everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And trying to keep people out of nursing homes, out of hospitals, but when they are in nursing homes and hospitals, being able to communicate and organize the care to be the best care it can be. So geriatricians work very closely with nurses and social workers and physical therapists and others. But I think the innovations, you know, Medicare's also been an innovator in terms of data for reporting and in terms of now all of the advances of the ACA. So I think that all of the creative approaches to driving care that's more coordinated in some ways come from those roots within the early days of Medicare and the the specialty of geriatric medicine. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Castle, I was glad to hear you allude to some other members of the healthcare team there a moment ago. And I know that in your role at the National Quality Forum, uh, the issue of interprofessional practice must arise, but also that among the stakeholders, although we've primarily focused in the conversation on physicians, you must have represented the other uh, clinical professions in particular that play an important role in the healthcare delivery system, the PAs and the nurse practitioners and the health psychologists and others. Tell us maybe just a little bit about how the National Quality Forum has, you know, since it was founded you know, back in uh, the late 90s, really transformed who's at the table in terms of an interprofessional perspective on how from in clinical practice we achieve these transformations in the direction of better quality. Well, we have a large number of medical specialty societies who are more than 65 who are um, members of NQF, but we also have a very large number of nursing organizations, 
pharmacy is huge. I mean, when we think about Mm -hmm. how the world of pharmacy uses data and um, needs to have very reliable systems in place to make sure that they they deliver um, the accurate medication to the right patient at the right time. Um, And then, of course, all of the rehabilitative uh, therapists Mm -hmm. and the many, many more um, specialists What's interesting to me about this transition and what I call measurement science is that we've tended to focus on the doctor measures because that's who gets paid, by and large, Mm -hmm. in our uh, current system. Um, But, in fact, more and more everybody is recognizing that the quality of the care that is given is is can be attributed to a team, either a small team or a larger system, depending on what it is. Even in an operating room, of course, it's not just surgeon. Um, and in a group practice, there are sometimes a doctor will be covering for another doctor. So I think we need to l- really look at this question of attribution in measurement and who who really is responsible for that outcome and frankly my perspective as a physician and as a geriatrician is that more and more i think we should be reporting um team outcomes and system outcomes rather than the mm-hmm. individual person um and that's going to of course depend on changing of mm-hmm. payment and models and things like that but um i see that as really where we ought to be going We've been speaking with Dr. Christine Castle, President and CEO of the National Quality Forum. You can learn more about their work by going to qualityforum.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at NAT Quality Forum. Dr. Castle, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. You're most welcome. I've enjoyed it. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We often hear about the high price tag of healthcare in the United States. But does the U.S. spend almost twice as much per capita on health care as any other country? That's what Senator Bernie Sanders said in a speech at the Iowa State Fair. But Sanders, who's running for the Democratic presidential nomination, is wrong. The U.S. does spend more than twice as much per capita as the average amount spent by other developed nations, but it doesn't spend twice as much as every one of them. We consulted the most recent data from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which shows the U.S. spent $8,713 per capita in 2013 on health care. That's more than double the OECD average of $3,453 per capita. After the U.S., Switzerland at 6325 per capita and Norway, 5862 per capita, spent the most on health care. But the U.S. didn't spend twice as much as either country, nor did the U.S. spend double the per capita amounts of the Netherlands, Sweden, or Germany. Barack Obama made a similar claim in 2008 when he was running for president. Obama was wrong back then, and Sanders is wrong to make the claim now. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. One in six people in the world lacks access to drinking water or basic sanitation, and statistics show that diarrhea is the leading cause of death for these populations. But access to clean and potable water continues to present a real challenge. In Africa, the numbers are staggering, with 46% of the residents of sub-Saharan Africa having no direct access to clean water. In 2005, artist Tracy Hawkins went to Tanzania to see what she could do about it. Clay pot water filtration has been around for several hundred years, where simple clay pots lined in the bottom with silver oxide can remove up to 99% of the impurities from most water sources, but no one had undertaken a dedicated program to produce and distribute these pots. Tracy founded the Singisi Pottery Project with a local activist and began making the pots with local artisans in this region of Tanzania. By 2008, she and her team were able to get a factory built so that they could increase production. The project has served multiple communities and continues to expand. Independent researchers have determined the system to be safe, effective, and the best part, the health of entire communities has been improved significantly once each village resident is provided with a clay filtration system. The pots are in expensive to produce, easy to handle, and the factory has also created jobs for local residents. They have since changed the name of the organization to Safe Water Ceramics of East Africa and have continued plans to replicate the successful model across the region. A simple, easily manufactured solution that improves access to potable water for a community that previously had few options, one that improves health, well-being, and economic conditions at the same time? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.